Hello again, Sounds and Silence listeners, and welcome back. Before we start this week's episode, I would like to propose a call to you all for questions. Uh, In a couple weeks, I will be answering listener questions here on the show. So if you had any questions that you wanted to ask or any topics you'd like to hear about on the show, please send them in via email to soundsinsilencepodcast at gmail.com. You can either send the question as text or as an audio recording that I can include on the show. So I'm looking forward to hearing and seeing what you all ask. Today's guest on the show is Angelica Rowell. Angelica is a teacher with Education Through Music Los Angeles, which is a nonprofit organization within the Los Angeles area. So without further ado, let's welcome Angelica. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to be here with you. Well, for our listeners, would you like to describe what you do right now? Sure. Um, I am a, geez, I do everything. (laughs) I'm a Jill of all trades, if you will. Um, But I, I am a teacher, a music teacher, TK through eight through a nonprofit called Education Through Music Los Angeles that serves uh, the greater Los Angeles County. Um, and we're like a third party that gets brought into the schools who can't afford to have uh, public music education or even private music education. So um, we go into the schools and, and teach the kids music and general music or band or orchestra. There's all different sectors within our um, organization. So that's primarily what I do, but then I'm also TV writer, actor, singer. So I also perform and do all these things. And, uh, I've also developed a workshop that I probably need to change the name of soon, but I just call it arts for activism with Angelica Rowell, um, for the moment. And it talks about the different social justice issues and isms through an artistic lens, whether it be through dance, visual art, um, poetry, acting, TV, film, all those different things. We take a look at um, those different art forms and judge it from the idea of social justice and social activism and social reform. And then um, the participants, uh, while they're learning about these things, are also creating their own works of art that tackle a social issue kind of all over the place, doing a bunch of different things, but always trying to um, educate and bring about change and and make sure that people are well-informed and using their voices, because I think every person's individual voice is so powerful and and so beautiful and vital. Um, I do actually want to talk a lot about your, like, the kind of activism you've been doing in your teaching, but I want to first ask you, what was your first reaction and how did your your jobs kind of look at the beginning of lockdown and how they changed? Yeah, it was a mess. <laughs> I think um, especially having my entire livelihood is in the artistic community, you know, whether it be teaching or performing, like every single aspect of my life is within the arts community. And I think the arts community specifically got hit really, really hard. Um, with the initial closures of of shelter in place, because um, I'm in California, so like our governor just shut down like everything 
um, and I was in the middle of performances for an opera um, in LA, and so our run got cut, you know, in half. We did twelve out of our twenty-four performances, so that was like a really big deal. You know, our, my our schools got shut down initially. They just like kicked out anyone from the public schools that weren't like immediate faculty so us being like a third party nonprofit like they're like you're not allowed on our campus at all um and i just remember my supervisor being like hey these school systems are looking like they're going to shut down i would take anything personal from your classroom like today and i had already driven like two blocks away from work so i was like okay i have to go back and it was just really anxiety inducing because i don't think anyone knew what was happening and what was going on and sort of what to expect. We just kind of knew that everything was stopping. For me, it was as if everything I was working on in that moment, everything I had in my life was gone within 16 to 24 hours. And to feel, it feels like it sounds so dramatic, but it really felt like a sort of inevitable, like I can only really equate it to what someone might feel like, like if their house burns down or like experience like a natural disaster. It's not something that you're like expecting or something you can prepare for. It's just like this almost immediate feeling of like everything you hold dear to you is gone, you know, in a matter of hours or even seconds. Um, and that's really what it felt like. It felt like a career catastrophe, you know, natural disaster. Everything was just gone. I think that's a great way to put it because you're right. Everything just completely disappeared. I think a lot of people kind of had the ground removed from under them in a lot of ways, especially artists. So your, your organization got kicked out of the schools. Did you have any interaction after that with the students? Yeah, so it was kind of, um, it was like a rocky transition, I would say. We got um, kicked out of the schools and then it took a few weeks for our company to kind of be in communication with our individual schools because we do serve so many different um, school districts within LA County. So every school within itself, even if it is in a district, is different. Um, and so my supervisor and like, his supervisors were like in communication with the principals and the districts and trying to figure out like what we were doing. And so eventually um, we ended up doing distance learning and I was teaching, you know, like 15, 20 minute lessons via Zoom. I did have some communication with the kids and with the staff after the fact, but it took a few weeks. And then there was also because of the budget cuts happening and uh, within the district, like there was sort of abrupt stops. Just, you know, I think everyone is like a chicken with their head cut off right now, but like it really affects these sort of interpersonal connections because things aren't being conveyed and communicated effectively. So it was just, it was really, it was a difficult transition and getting then into actual teaching and then things still moving around due to budget cuts and even more like crisis management was really, really stressful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Crisis management is a great way to put it too. I think like a lot of what, what did that look like and how did, how did you have to change your lessons to fit online? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned that I teach TK through eight. 
So that's like a broad, <laughs> a broad spectrum of like people. So I would make, basically what I would do is I would create two to three different levels. I'd create like beginner for like my TK to like two. I'd create a plan for three, four, and then one that was like five through eight or six through eight. Um, I would try to stay on like a similar topic for all three of those things, just so it was like less work on me. And I tried to make them as interactive as possible. So for my little kids, I was constantly doing like movement. I was constantly having them dance or I would do, um, I call it <laughs> an animal symphony um, where we talk about dynamics in regard to like animal sounds because they all understand animal sounds, right? They're little kids. And so I, you know, what does like, what is a quiet animal and go around and unmute them and be like, can you make that animal noise? And then we choose like the top th three animals and I'd say, okay, choose your favorite animal and let's make a quiet animal symphony and unmute all of them and let them make their noise for a little bit. And they could even, you know, act like the animal. So yeah, just trying to like create things that can still be conveyed through a screen. Um, you know, I don't have a whiteboard at home. I don't have like all these things. I think fumbling around trying to do like screen share all the time or like whiteboard through Zoom is just like, it, it breaks the connection. So I wanted to find something that was easy for me to do without anything extra. Similarly, I've, I've heard mixed things about like the, the use of technology and how it works and how it doesn't, but face to face, even if it is online, it's so, it, it feels different. And I wouldn't be surprised if the kids feel that too. And they probably need that connection with you. Yeah. It's also, um, it's interesting because especially for my little kids, like I have so many parents there with them who are, you know, helping them with the technology and things like that. And so um, what's been really fun for me to see like while doing this is through having like an interactive lesson plan, I also get parents involved because they're already there with the kids. And it's something that they, even if they aren't a musician or like, you know, have studied music, they understand loud and quiet. They understand animals, you know, they understand tapped a steady beat. And so I've, I've seen a lot more parent engagement with my littles um, when I have started to, to switch this over. And I think it, the same thing would happen if they were in the classroom as well, because I try to make my lesson plans as interactive with especially my little kids as possible. Otherwise, I lose them. Because um, also my company works specifically in low funded and underfunded I hate those terms, but unfortunately that's like what funders understand, um, marginalized brown and black communities. So I'm in places like South LA and Compton and, and places where, um, again, they like can't afford to bring in a music educator. And so we come in and, and do that for them. And so these kids innately understand music, you know, like music is such a big part of black and brown communities and dancing is such a big part of black and brown communities. And so I've, as I've worked within these communities, you know, one of my main goals is trying to bring in a relatability aspect to my lesson plans. So that way these kids don't check out. And so I've, I've really tried to implement things that are already a part of their everyday life and everyday understanding and bring those aspects into something new that they can learn. 
Oh, and I think there's a lot of research that shows that that's how that that works better for kids. Yeah. Relatability, yeah. connecting it. And, and I love that now you're getting um, all of this parent support and parent, you know, like the, it's nice to see that the parents now, maybe they didn't before, but now they really know what music class is and what it's like and what it's doing for their kid. How different would our music classes be if we, if that was the norm? Yeah. Um, so something I've been really curious about, and I'd like to ask you is, have you noticed any issues with access since we've switched online? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think especially working in low income areas, um, you know, a lot of our families may not have Wi-Fi at home. Um, luckily the school that I work for in Compton is a, oh shoot, what is the term for it? Uh, one-to-one school. So all the kids have iPads. Um, and so they were able to, you know, take their iPads home, but you know, if they don't have internet access, then like, that's a thing. And then at least Spectrum was like offering free Wi-Fi for students, but like, there's so many loopholes. I felt like that had to be jumped through in order to, make sure that students had access to continue their education after the school closures. Um, And it was just really disheartening. And, you know, California schools especially are generally over capacity and, you know, have classes of like 32 to 35 plus. Um, And, you know, there were some times where I would have one kid show up to my online class and I would just have a one-on-one lesson with, you know, a second grader, um, which is a little bit awkward more so for the kid than for me, because they're like, my teacher is <laughs> right here and like telling me to do things. And, you know, they get shy and all these things, but, um, yeah, there was, I, there was definitely a decline in attendance once we switched to online uh, teaching. But, you know, those are my kids and they care about them. And I think music is such a vital part of a well-rounded education. And just not having them there was like really disheartening as a teacher, but also because I care about them. And I, I hope that everything at home is okay and that they, you know, do have access to making sure that they're continuing their education. Yeah, I think more questions get brought up when you see that kind of data and that kind of information. It's, you know, like, why is that happening? And, you know, it just, it gets, the deeper you go, the more questions get, you know. Right. (laughs) Um, um, I would like to hear about kind of the activism piece of what you're doing at your nonprofit. Yeah. um, So over the past year and a half, um, I've really been working on, like I said, like building a bridge of connection and like really pulling in things that these kids relate to and already understand and how to incorporate that into teaching them something new and still doing my job as a music teacher. And one of the ways I've been focusing on doing that is really focusing on the evolution of black music in the United States of America. Um, And this is specifically targeted for like, if you have a mature fourth grade class, (laughs) you can probably do it with with them. But uh, I usually start around fifth or sixth grade with these and this could go through high school. Um, But really talking about how the music that they listen to today, this 
the sense of pop, hip hop, R&B, um, all these different musical forms that they hear on the radio, in their TV shows, and their video games, all has like a direct lineage and connection back to the transatlantic slave trade um, and West African music. And so creating a timeline um, of the different musical eras that are very significant that have a direct connection to blackness and how uh, you know, flexible and, and beautiful Black music and Black history um, is and, and really seeps into every major musical form that we know and love today. What even is Western? And I think you and I had this conversation um, when we had a meeting a few weeks ago, but this idea of Western teaching, of Western music, you know, like, we are the West, you know, the United States of America, Africa, like we're, we're all the West technically, you know, and then we don't understand this hemisphere as Western, you know, what we identify as Western music and Western pedagogy and all these things comes from Europe. And all it is, is creating a distinction between the quote unquote civilized you know, practices of European people and putting it up on in the hierarchy and putting it above these African and, and Asian and um, Latinx cultures of music that these European people want to distinguish themselves from. And so they call it Western to make it seem civilized and like this is the proper version. It's not Western teaching or Western understanding, it's Anglo-Saxon understanding and teaching and pedagogy. And so I've kind of started to like take another look at what even is Western and like trying to take that out of my own vocabulary. It's like, it's not western music that's just a distinction you know we're creating subgroups and understanding so that way we can create power and control through institutions that is a that is a really great point i've never i've never thought of it that way and i think i really appreciate you bringing that up because you're right technically uh europe is eastern of us we are more western and it's kind of that we hear this a lot in education where we kind of code but like what we try and cover up kind of these horrible, like actually racist sort of ideas. And we do that in education where we call, you know, we call like something I've, I've been really sitting with lately is uh, when do we use the, the term diverse in schools? Mm -hmm. And I've realized we don't really use diverse when it's actually diverse. We use the term, we say this is a really diverse school when actually the number numbers wise, it might not be very diverse. It's actually just a lot of students of color. And it's a lot of, you know, it's like, oh, there's, you know, 90% black student population. That's not diverse. That's not mixed, you know, mm -hmm. but you don't want to say this is a school with a lot of black students, you know, and I wonder if some of our terms protect this kind of like white supremacy kind of concepts as well where it's like well it's western western doesn't sound so bad right but it's like mm, no it's actually covering up the hierarchy in a, a little bit i mean we say the same thing with you know um like urban is something that i think a lot of people have brought up where they're like yeah. what do you mean by urban 
you know, because <laughs> it's mean like black and brown communities. That's what you mean when you right, say because, urban, <laughs> yeah, urban or inner city. And it's like, well, but that wealthy private school that's in the city that they don't count as urban. And it's like, hmm, what do you mean? Because it's in the city, it's inner city. What do you mean by that? So uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think that's, I really love that you brought that up because I did not recognize that that was a term we were using to basically cover up this hierarchy. Um, we are taught the Western canon. We are taught, again, these, these dead wise from Europe, uh, specifically, you know, Austria, Germany, and Italy, um, and England. Uh, and, and that is what we call like the Western canon, but it's like, that's all European. That's all Anglo-Saxon, you know, understanding. This is all coming out of a place where we are truly just glorifying the hierarchy and like white supremacist understanding, um, and perpetuating the distinction between these Anglo-Saxon values um, and what they viewed as subpar or subhuman or uncivilized. But that, that really makes me think about how, almost like how culturally dangerous it is to get an arts degree in a lot of ways. And, and so to think about like, well, what, what was added from my music degree? Because I know there's a lot that was added and I did grow a lot, but also what was taken away. Because again, like when you have, when you pursue a degree in the arts, you're kind of pursuing a degree in culture. And the question is always whose culture? Yeah, whose culture? Again, because again, we talked about this, but it's like, it is dangerous, you know, if we are only focusing on like one specific thing, you know, we're not getting our master's, this is undergrad. So like, there's no reason for us to be specialized already in only understanding, even if we are pursuing a classical degree, you know, there are black classical musicians, there are Hispanic and Latinx classical musicians, like we should be exploring everything that is under that umbrella of classical and not just white classical. Um, and so that, I think that is dangerous because it's another form of erasure through prolonged education and internalization of understanding what classical quote unquote music is and isn't on the other hand. And what does that say for students like us? Yeah, brown students, like, <laughs> really, I think it creates a distinction of saying, like, you don't really have a place in this world. And I felt that. I don't know. I'm, what does that mean for, for those of us and our students, too, especially? Because it's like, how am I supposed to transfer this to my students if, if the musical world won't accept them? How do I make this kind of this world better? For them, because right now it like it sometimes feels like that world doesn't want them. When you can't protect them from that, when you can't change it fast enough, what do you do? And I I, I wonder if if that is maybe why we like use this coded language again of like Western 
pedagogy, Western music, all these things, thus creating not only a distinction of like what is esteemed and what isn't, but then also creating this exclusivity of who is allowed in this world and who is welcomed and who this world is feasible for um, and who can achieve in this realm. I think this is also part of the, the, the trouble with the discussion is um, there's kind of this, like, it's so white centered. The perspective is so white centered that when we argue, a lot of people kind of respond with, well, why do you want to remove it though? It's good. Didn't you like learn this? And it's like, no, the idea, um, this, but like this, instead of that, it's a, it's a yes. And yes, we're going to improv this. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I, I wish that we had a more expansive education and, you know, people could bat that aside and say, well, then I hope you know that you're going to have six years to finish your undergrad, like, because there is so much to learn, but I, you know, I just wish that I'm not, like you said, like, I'm not asking to like eradicate or like completely dismantle the system of like a, again, quote unquote, Western understanding or a Western teaching of the canon. I just wish it was more expansive, more inclusive, that these courses and this knowledge of other cultural music and music from other peoples was just more readily available because it feels inaccessible. I think, and maybe you feel the same way that you don't, but in my own personal teaching philosophy, I feel that we don't get to choose for our kids how they interact with the art. Mm. We just get to, um, like the idea is that while you're here with me, I want to give you as much tools as you can so that and when inevitably they have to leave you at some point, I mean, that's, that's, it's sad, but it's also kind of special about being a teacher is that like the time is really precious that you have with them. And the hope is that they can leave you with the ability to continue doing something, but we don't get to decide what that something is necessarily. Whereas I think when we get into the collegiate level, once you're in the program, they decide your path. The more I've thought of that, the more it's like you want to you you really think that music coming from an entirely different continent, an entirely different culture, that we will never we don't call it American music. We know it's not American music, will be more relatable. And that's so much older. It's not it's not the same continent, it's not the same culture, it's not the same time period. You think that will be more relatable than music that came, you know, 40, 50 you know, or even like 20, 30 years ago from Americans living in American experience, you think it's more relatable simply because of the color of their skin, if we're being honest. That's, and that's what, I mean, whether or not they know that they're expressing that, they are saying that. But yeah, that's what our, that's what every institution upholds, you know? Because uh, that's what every institution was built on. We're in a, a, a time and place, I think, especially with people within our generation and younger, that we are really starting to try to find ways to dismantle this general understanding of whiteness as the norm, 
as the standard, as the end-all be-all of what is superior um, and really bringing in and bringing in a more diverse, multicultural, uh, well-rounded understanding of human experience and painting it in, in the light of the truth rather than the person who was the victor in history. You know, we always say like history was written by the victors. Um, and I think the institutions at, in, in tandem are, are built by the victors and therefore everything taught within these institutions and implemented within these institutions is favoring the victor or the oppressor um, and excluding and ostracizing and belittling the, the truth and the experience of the oppressed. Looking at kind of how we are online, we might continue to be online while you're trying to, um, right when you're really trying to, to, to make these advancements, what do you kind of see for this, this next semester? That is the question. <laughs> I think obviously it's going to be feasible, but I think we as teachers um, in general are just going to have to get really, really creative. And I think um, any teacher and educator who is wanting to bring these activist themes into their classroom or into specifically their music classroom like you're going to have to get really really innovative you're going to have to do a lot of research on your own to find songs that are bringing forth a message I, I i talk about this with my kids of which song and which lyrics and even if you want to bring in the visual aspect and have them watch these music videos which visual aspects and music videos are perpetuating an ism so really like uh, continuing to sort of glorify, you know, whether it be sexism or racism or any of those isms, um, and say like, these things are okay and these are normal, um, or which one of these songs is, you know, the activist art, which one of these songs is bringing light to an issue, is saying like, this isn't okay and things need to change. And there needs to be like a lot of research behind that. And so, you know, one, what is going to be okay to share with your children? Because it gets tricky because a lot of these either um, have expletives or the visuals may not be, uh, you know, school friendly, um, especially if you're teaching K through 12. Um, in college, it's like a free-for-all, whatever. But, um, <laughs> you know, in a specifically a public school system, like there's such a restriction on what, what you can and can't um, talk about and like show, you know, you can't get like too political. You can't really talk about like religion um, and all these things. And so it's going to take some time on your part as the teacher to do the research, to make sure that you're still bringing forth um, informative and impactful, you know, material um, that is not going to get you in trouble for talking about these things. Um, but then I would argue, you know, like it is never too early to talk to your students about these things. You know, there are studies and statistics going around that like bias can be instilled in babies as early as three months old. And by the age of three, some kids are already like purposefully using um, derogatory language. Um, and so that within itself should show us that like age should not be a barrier about talking about, you know, racism and all these things that are happening. You just have to find a way that is impactful and um, gets through to the kids. And so 
I would just find like a common understanding of your classroom and of your kids community um, and use that as a way in to talk about these things, to talk about, you know, what these kids are absorbing, what they're seeing, um, how they can bring about change through art, you know, get them moving through the screen, allow them to get silly and do interpretive dances and just find a way in to connect with your students in a meaningful and impactful way that is talking about activism and is talking about social change. Doing that through the screen, I think, is you're going to have to get creative, like I said. But I, I really encourage myself and every educator to allow themselves to get creative. And um, I think their kids, you know, will flourish and, and, and be captivated. My only goal as an educator is to instill in my students that their voice, their perspective, their understanding of the world is unique and important and valid. And when you start to kind of awaken this critical thinking and understanding of your students' community and of the way in which they are perceived in the world and received by the world, they start to look at their lives differently and they start to think about the possibilities of what their life can be in a different light. We just want to create critical thinking individuals starting from an early age so they understand how they can move through this world and what the possibilities are and that their voice matters and that they do have agency and that they are able to say things that matter and create things that matter. And that's all I want to do for my kids is to encourage that, you know, that solidity in their voice and that agency within them. Thank you all for listening to this episode and for coming back after a week of break. If you liked that show, please follow Angelica on Instagram at angelica.rowell, um, also the Black Light Arts Collective. Once again, if you have questions that you'd like to include on our podcast Q&A, please send them to soundsandsilencepodcast at gmail.com. I'm really looking forward to having you all on the show, listeners on the show. The music you've heard today on this episode is an original song by Angelica called Brand New Day, and we will let it play for the end of this episode. Thank you, Angelica, for letting us hear your beautiful piece. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.